This is a HeadGum Podcast. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today on the Skype on the phone, I am talking to Sean Kelly from the National Video Game Museum. Hey, Sean, how you doing? What's going on, Jeff? National Video Game Museum. This is something I've waited, uh, I've waited for to exist my whole life. I mean, let's start with just the basics. Where is this thing? Uh, we're in Frisco, Texas. It's about 30 miles north of Dallas. And... What is the museum? Well, what isn't the museum? How could there not be a video game museum, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my favorite kind of guess for the show is something where when you hear about it, uh, you're like, wait, that's a thing. But then when you think about it for just a few seconds, you say, oh, of course that's a thing. So it's not like, what do you mean there's a video game museum? But there's a million ways you could do a video game museum. So I'm curious, you know, if there's like an explicit goal of the museum and kind of what the aesthetic, and what the feel is like, all that type of stuff. A couple, a couple of things. First of all, we, we started our organization uh, about 15 years ago. We've been doing traveling exhibits all over the country. We, we've done E3 for the last 12 years. We've done South by Southwest. We've done PAX. Uh, we've done DICE. We've done Game Developers Conference. We've done uh, traveling shows all over the country, uh, as many as five or six a year. I think I saw you at E3 last year. It was like a Pixels, like it was Pixels themed. The movie was coming out, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I saw that. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, we've done that kind of exhibit at E3. In fact, we've won, we've won uh, best in show a couple of times at E3, <laughs> beating out uh, you know Microsoft and Nintendo, had, who spent millions to put on their exhibit. But uh, uh, we've done that type of exhibit, like I said, for about the past fifteen years, and uh, we. Uh, we decided uh, about six years ago that uh, we needed to make a, a, a permanent home for our collection. Everybody comes to E3 or South by Southwest or whatnot, and they uh, they really got a kick out of our exhibit. And you know, the biggest question that we've been asked over the years at those exhibits is, where can I see this the rest of the year? Um, so in about uh, about 2009, I guess that's a little longer than six years ago now, but about 2009 we decided to form a, a nonprofit with the goal of uh, finding a permanent at home for our uh, our collection, uh, we did that uh, this year. We finally opened, uh, in, like I said, in Frisco, Texas. And the point of the museum, uh, the main point of the museum, is to to kind of educate people as to uh, you know the history of the video game industry. Um, it's it's an important part of uh, of uh, American popular culture, of global popular culture, uh, for that matter. Um, and you know, it was amazing to us that there wasn't. Uh, there wasn't a, a, a museum, uh, you know, a, a real museum uh, anywhere in the country that that was dedicated to, uh, to, to you know, kind of not only uh, presenting the history of the video game industry but also preserving it. Um, there are a couple different organizations that have video game sections. Uh, uh, the Strong up in Rochester, New York, has an, a great video game collection, and, and they have a, a pretty cool video game exhibit there. Uh, but at the end of the day, the Strong is a toy museum, um, and there are a couple other organizations that are like that that, that have put together uh, you know decent video video game collections. But there was none that you know that was their only focus, and that's what we felt was uh, was important. Um, and when you say we, who is we in this situation? 
It's uh, there's three of us. My partner John Hardy, who who lives uh, lives there in New York, actually in Valley Stream, um, and my uh, my other partner uh, Joe Santulli, uh, who uh, who did live in uh, in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. Uh, he uh, he actually moved uh, moved to Texas. He's living in Texas right now. Um, John and I both have uh, school age kids, so we haven't been able to uh, to make that voyage just yet. But uh, John's working on it now, and and. Uh, I don't know. We'll see what happens uh, with me in the next couple of years. But uh, right now, Joe is uh, is is living in uh, in Texas, uh, working at the museum six days a week. And then, how did you guys end up? Why Texas, of all places? Well, we did a lot of searching. Uh, we we talked to a lot of different uh, you know, cities, and you know, our knee-jerk reaction was that uh, the the National Video Game Museum belonged in Silicon Valley. Uh, uh, that's where video games were born. Uh, I think they have a computer history museum there. Not a video game, though. Presumably, they have something video game related to there. But I think there is a computer museum there. Is that not right? It is. There is a computer history museum, and they're the same kind of thing. Uh, computer history museum is great, and in fact, they were uh, they were probably our biggest inspiration for our museum. Um, they. Uh, we we got a behind the scenes tour of the computer history museum back around 2007 or 2008 and that's kind of what you know we need to do this just for video games and they have some video game stuff in the computer history museum they they have an amazing display um, the the uh, but the, again it, their their focus was computers and as cool as that was to us because we're we're all pretty big computer geeks as well uh, it just wasn't exactly what we were looking for um, so we we shot the idea around a little bit in California and you know the part of the problem was that at the time that we were looking. Um, to, to kind of move our plans forward for a, a physical museum, um, we were the country was in the you know the heart of the uh, the big recession in 2009 2000, 2010, and California was hit pretty hard by that. And California didn't have any money. Uh, it's uh, in order to do something like this and do it do it properly and and uh, with with the proper amount of respect that that we wanted to give it, uh, you had to have some money. Um, and California, California, most of the cities that we talked to, eh, you know, they were interested, but they didn't want to have to, you know, put in any effort or, or more specifically put in any, any money to make it happen. Um, it was at one of the traveling shows that we do that we were doing. Uh, specifically, this was the, the Dice Summit, uh, which was held in Los, An uh, Las Vegas. Uh, the Dice Summit was... Uh, it's 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 mainly like industry uh, executives, you know, company heads or department heads, and they all get together and and they put uh, they put on a uh, a show where they hand out some awards there, and and uh, the the software development association is the one that sponsors it. And at that at that show, uh, we had kind of a, a small exhibit. There wasn't a lot of space for us, but uh, they asked us to put something together, uh, uh, and and we put it put it together. And we met Randy Pitchford there. And Randy Pitchford is. Uh, the president of Gearbox Software, Borderlands, uh, Brothers in Arms, uh, they just came out with uh, Battleborn. Um, uh, <clears throat> Randy saw our exhibit at DICE and said, wow, you, know, you guys you guys want to uh, uh, build a museum? Well, I, I've been thinking about doing the same thing. And quite honestly, you know, we've had those kind of conversations with people dozens and dozens of times over the years. So uh, <laughs> I have to, uh, I have to sh show my... Uh, uh, True colors to some extent. I, I'm not. Uh, my partner John and I were the ones that were doing that show in, in Las Vegas. Uh, but John and I aren't really modern gamers. We don't really have a lot of time. We have 
families with kids. We don't have a lot of time to, to devote to modern games. We're much more uh, well-versed in, in vintage gaming than, than we were at modern gaming. And we didn't honestly know who Randy Pitchford was. Um, we kind of thought uh, he was another... And I've told we've told Randy this story to his face, so I can say this. Uh, we thought he was another crackpot. Just wanted, hey, I want to make a museum. You know, sure. uh, but for but, those that don't know, uh, Gearbox, pretty well-respected developer, and Randy Pitchford, like one of the small handful of video game industry professionals whose name is sort of known in the community. Like it's not like um, movies where everyone knows who directed every movie. But Randy Pitchford is a personality that people are familiar with and respect. People know him. absolutely. I, I come to find out, you know, Randy was the driving force or had a, a big hand in in Half Life Two, which isn't you know modern or vintage gaming. But Half Life Two, I played a lot of, and it was a great game. He, yeah, Stone Cold Platt. I mean, it's it's I think generally regarded as one of the best of all time, right? And absolutely, he he did a lot of work on uh, on Counter Strike. Uh, you know, I mean, Rand, Randy had his hand in, in in some of my favorite games of all time. But I I just didn't know who the man was. I'd never you know read up about him. And and you know, like like I said, we kind of brushed him off. Thought thought he was just another one of those guys that you know just spewing out an idea and didn't really have any. So after that dice show, uh, we decided to circle around and, and drop him an email. And, and uh, right away, Randy said, well, you know, why don't you guys come on down? I have the perfect place for, for the museum. And he at that time, uh, his company was headquarters, headquartered in Plano, um, but he was about to move to Frisco. Uh, he uh, he said, why don't you guys come on down and, and take a look at the uh, the area, and, and uh, uh, I, I even have a spot picked out. I have something that, that would work perfect for you guys. So we went down, and we met with Randy, and, and right away, I, you know, when we got to Texas, like I said, the, the rest of the country was, was uh, in, a, you know, in the heart of the, the, the recession, but in Texas, there was no recession. These guys were these guys were working. There was construction everywhere. Frisco was building, and it was amazing to see because I, I live in Chicago, and there was nothing going on in Chicago. I, one of the guys who worked for me was a, a, a union electrician and hadn't worked for two years. At, you know, kind of working part time for me to, to try and make ends meet. But in in Texas, it, so much was going on. There, guy, you know, I mean just amazing amount of activity there for the time and we could tell right away these, these guys these guys are doing something right down here they they understand or you know everybody else uh, was having trouble but but texas was thriving uh through randy's relationship with the city of frisco and in, in bringing his you know hundreds of millions of dollar company uh into the city he, he had uh, a lot of contacts with the, the city council he was friends with the mayor and basically what randy did was he went to his contacts on Frisco and said, "Listen, listen to what these guys have to say. Uh, and you know, if you don't like their idea, fine. But uh, he was the one that that uh, got us an audience with the people that could make it happen. And uh, right away, we went down there. We we did a presentation before the the city council and the mayor, and and they loved it. They absolutely loved the idea. They couldn't understand like us. They couldn't understand why there was no video game museum in the country, and they wanted it to be in Frisco. So uh, we had a series of uh, you know meetings and." and uh, conference calls and, and uh, things over the next uh, few months, and, and uh, they made it happen. Uh, Frisco, uh, Frisco wanted the, the National Video Game Museum there. We love the area. 
Um, it's kind of centrally located in the country, and you know some some of the things that we uh, we came to find out over 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 time is you know, there there are more there, there's only one state in the in the whole country that that has more video game related jobs, and that's California. But Texas is second, and it's close. So there's a lot going on uh, video game wise, and certainly technology wise in in Texas. And uh, it, you know, as, as much as I wouldn't have thought of of that area without it being pointed out to me, it, it it's a really good fit. It definitely is a good fit. Earlier, you said, goal of the museum, educate people about the history of video games because it's important. Now, I agree with you. I do think video games are important, but there are some out there uh, who might challenge that. For, so for those people to play devil's advocate, uh, why are video games important? Aren't they just goofy fun and kids play them or whatever? Like, why, why is it actually important to educate people about the history of video games? Well, first, first of all, I mean, if you think of it in terms of of, uh, of a career path, of nothing else. So, you know, if you look at the the, the kids, and we've had uh, we actually just just started uh, accepting uh, field trip requests at the end of the school year. So, we only did about fifteen of them or oh so. Oh my God! If my school took a field trip to the video game museum, that would have been the best day of my pre-college education like i can't even wrap my head around like the idea of a school field trip there wow that was one of the things that we were worried about with that because exactly what you're saying so, like how do you convince the teacher there's got to be a teacher who's like i'm not bringing the kids here so they can go play donkey kong all day i know like i'm not i i don't have that point of view at all but certainly like some teacher is going to say that at some point like what do you say to them like what what is how educational is it really and how do you convince people that's exactly what we were worried about. So you know, the teachers, the teachers are the ones that come to us. They send us emails. Oh, I want to bring my group there. And what we were thinking early on is, well, how are these teachers going to be able to go back to their uh, superintendent or their board, uh, educa- board of education and, and say, you know, yeah, I'm going to bring a group of 50 kids to the National Video Game Museum, and they're going to say, what? You know, they're just going to hang out and play Mario Brothers all day. How is that educational? Well, it kind of sounds like it's an arcade. Like it could be an arcade. To some extent, well, we do have a. I'm um, sure it is arcade like, but you know, it, it's to uh, to the principal or whatever. It sounds like you might as well just be saying, "I'm going to take the kids to the arcade." It's yeah, that, that's true. But if you have to think about what's behind uh, what's behind the video game, so well, the acronym and you know it, it, that's commonly thrown around in, in educational circus circles is is STEM, and that's for stands for science, technology. Uh, what the heck is electronics? The- maybe engineering? One of the two, right? Engineering, yeah, engineering and math. Um, and then there's another one that that they add an A to it for STEAM, and A is art. So if you look at if you look at all of those letters in the acronym, video games can cover every one of those bases. Uh, you know, science is obviously there's there's a whole lot uh, uh, going on as as far as. Uh, uh, science is the most difficult difficult one, but um, there's a whole lot going on uh, on on every other front. There's certainly technology. There's technology in, in every aspect of video games. There's engineering of, of or uh, perfect example. We're, we have a classroom in the museum right now, and uh, we're building. Uh, we have somebody in there that's that's decorating, and on the wall she's painting all the different aspects of of, of video game development, from from like the code to to wireframe models to to the final product. Um, and she's got all sorts of different sample code and and uh, uh, you know, like I said, the different uh, wireframe models and different you know recognizable video game characters in there. Um, <clears throat> but all of that, all of that is involved involved in in. Uh, um, in engineering, if you're engineering a, a game, there's there's a lot uh, you have to figure out 
uh, physics, the the motion, and the the how fast can this guy move, or how you know how slow will the will the rain fall? And, and granted, there there are uh, tools that help you figure all figure all of that out within games, but you have to have a basic understanding of all of those things before you can even get involved uh, to, in in developing that game. Uh, but every one of those every one of those letters in the in the acronym, the art, uh, the music. I, I mean, if you take a look at the art of video games, there are companies that do nothing but displays of of art in video games. It's it, it's absolutely a, a a work of art. Many of these games, and uh, and you can define a work of art in many different ways. You know, I mean, maybe it's not visually stunning, but you know, take a look at uh, take a look at something like. Uh, uh, Pitfall on uh, on Atari Twenty Six Hundred is Pitfall a work of art? Well, no, it doesn't really look like a work of art. Maybe the 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 pixelated scorpion that's underneath the 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 ground that you're walking on isn't isn't visually artistic. But you know, the way that that David Crane brought all of those elements together into the perfect game at the time, in in our opinion, it's, it's certainly a work of art. But <clears throat> the bottom line is, is as we cover every letter of those those acronyms. It all boils down to uh, a, a you know a career path. I mean, isn't that what that school is is uh, preparing you for? You can go to school for eight years in grammar school and four years in high school and four or eight or twelve years in college, and and the end result is is to to get you into a job. So the idea, one of the the basic uh, premises behind the museum is this: to show people here's what's involved in making a game. Here's what's involved making a game back then. Here's what's involved making a game now, and and kind of expose people that come through the museum to all the different uh, aspects of making video games and it's not it's not just some guy sitting behind a, a, a computer typing and and there, there's a lot more to it it, it uh, and like I said to, to, to kind of be able to go through the evolution of, of that process in the museum it, it's very worthwhile and quite honestly like I said I, I was a little concerned uh, with trying to sell that uh, to to uh, educators, but I haven't really had to. It, it, it's the, the teachers come in with their groups of of, uh, of students, and they're blown away. They're absolutely blown away, and and in what these kids. And it's not just yes, they're going to play some Mario Brothers, and there are yes, they're going to play Pac Man in in our arcade. But there's a lot more to it. If if as these kids go through, uh, you know, station to station, we have eighteen or nineteen different exhibits in the museum. But as they go from exhibit to exhibit, they learn about the sound in video games. They learn about the the controls in video games. They learn about some of the electronics behind it. There, there's a there's a whole lot going on uh, other than just playing video games in the museum. So, how do you get people thinking about, and how do you get, I guess, kids in particular thinking about, uh, you know, these behind the scenes elements at a level that they're not thinking about when they're, you know, just playing at home or on their phones or whatever? Well, basically, you expose them to it. You know, if they're sitting down in front of their Xbox One playing Call of Duty, all they're doing is thinking about shooting the guy on the other end of the of the screen. But uh, if if you if actually go through and you see the inner workings, or you play a Pong system, and and uh, it's funny, we have in the museum we have the world's largest Pong console. It, it's uh, 15 feet wide by I don't know six or six or so feet deep and you know five feet tall, but um, and and the the paddles are the size of like a car steering wheel. So people stand at that at that pong machine, and they're actually able to play uh, 
play pong on this giant thing. But it's funny to see see like a fourteen year old or a fifteen year old boy or, or girl, for that matter, uh, stand at this ancient pong machine and and screaming and yelling and high fiving and punching the guy next. This is pong, you know. But it's great to be able to see kids get excited about something so simple. But that's the beginning of the beginning of the process of the museum. So you start at pong and you end uh, in in our in our eighties arcade, but you know, as you go through that whole process, you're seeing all the different aspects. We have a a, a big section of the museum that deals with uh, third-party development, and in that, uh, all the the handmade electronic devices that people use to to f try and figure out how to make their own games over the years. Or we have a section in that in that uh, same exhibit that uh, shows all the homebrew games. So people today that are making modern games or making games for original Nintendo or making games for Atari in their basements now because the tools are available to them. All of that exposure kind of sparks a, a, you know, a little bit of interest in, in these kids that uh, isn't available from, from them just sitting down in front of their Xbox. And like I said, the, the feedback that we've had from the, uh, from the educators has been phenomenal. What, what, kind of, what kind of feedback are they giving you? Oh, my gosh. We, uh, we had a great time. It was unbelievable how much the kids learned. Uh, we spent the whole next day talking about what we saw there. Uh, uh, basically, things like that. Uh, it, it, it's... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of specific comments, but I don't. I don't have any of the emails in front of me. But uh, not nothing but positive. And and like I said, uh, without any real effort on our part, like to to try and sell it to them. Certainly, we we meet them in the beginning of their field trip, and we give them a little talk, and you know, tell them what to expect as they as they go through the museum. But we're not we're not trying to you know pound this into the to teachers' heads. You know, look 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 how look how much they're going to learn. We kind of we kind of just set them free and let them do their own thing in the museum, and and just just in exploring uh, on their own. They've they found it incredibly educational, and, and uh, nobody has been disappointed so far. We're really excited. So what kind of exhibits are there? You mentioned a few. Just when you're starting a video game museum and you have the building, like how do you begin to decide what the exhibits are going to be and what the experience is going to be like? Yeah, that was... That was fun and and uh, and annoying at the same time. It was kind of difficult. You know, we had a, we have a little over ten thousand square feet, maybe eleven thousand square feet in the building that we have. So it's a pretty good sized building. But um, in during that process, when we were going through talking to the city and the mayor and the the council and everybody uh, uh, explaining what we were going to do. Um, we had to come up with a lot of different ideas for exactly that. So our initial exhibit exhibit or exhibit list was fifty six different concepts. Um, in the in the space itself, we only had room for eighteen. So we went through our list of of concepts and we kind of assigned categories to them, and we basically voted on them over and over and, and assigned you know one to ten. Uh, um, ratings for each of the different categories and we kind of pared it down that way to to the final 18 um but we have I'm trying to think of some uh, some of the more interesting uh, exhibits that, that we can put uh, for example we did a we did a 40 foot section a 40 foot section of wall on the rise and the crash of the video game industry or crash and rise so basically what that what that exhibit is is it's describing what happened, why the video game industry crashed in 1984, and what happened as a result of that um, as computers began to kind of 
uh, take over where video games left off. And then eventually, you know, video games came back into the in the mix. But there was a period in 1984 where no video game consoles were being made, and and uh, um, gamers were a little fed up with the lack of quality in in the video games. And uh, a lot of parents were looking at computers to be the next thing. Uh, so there was a kind of a, a little period of limbo. So what we did at that time uh, for that exhibit is. Uh, we built uh, we built an 80s video game store. So in this store, you got this guy who's been riding the wave of popularity for the last you know five to eight years, making a whole bunch of money. This is a mom and pop store, and and all of a sudden, about the end of 1983, no people stopped coming into his store. So he's he's uh, he's marking everything down. He's got dump bins on the floor full of games for half price. He's got. Uh, you know, all the all the old posters. So we did that uh, in the museum and in a corner of that exhibit. We built that uh, we built that eighties uh, mock store, and, and there's uh, the actual live product in the in the store lining the the wall with uh, you know uh, new in the box Atari twenty six hundred games or in television games and vintage posters on the wall. And we have a going out of business banner hanging up up in there. This this, this poor guy uh, just showed up for work one day and, and just suddenly realized that uh, the video game industry was crashing and he. He didn't know, under really understand why and didn't know what the heck he was going to do with himself. But uh, that uh, that's kind of a popular section. People uh, look at the you know the different items that we have in the in the the display case for that store, and, and a lot of a lot of pictures are taken in there. People you know, ringing themselves up on a '80s register. Um, also in that same section, we have uh, on the opposite wall. There's a 40 foot section of, of vintage computers, so you can you can actually walk up to uh, a TI 994A and and you know, play a game where you can you can load a, a cassette game off of a TRS-80 Model One uh, and try and play that game after you've uh, gone and, and had lunch waiting for the cassette to load. Um, we have a Commodore 64 in there where you can type load asterisk comma eight comma one and load whatever game happens to be in that drive and 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 play it in there. The idea there was that. Uh, we want people to experience what computers were like back then. Uh, uh, we have a, an acoustic modem on one of these things where, you know, some of the kids that walk up to this thing have absolutely no idea uh, what the heck it's supposed to do or, or, or what to do with it, for that matter. Um, it's fun. Uh, and, you know, the original plan was to not to tell anybody how to, how to do it, but that didn't last very long because uh, people gave up pretty quick. So now we have actually, we printed instructions how to load a game onto the uh, Commodore 64. Otherwise, uh, nobody would be able to figure it out. That's such a video game fan thing to do, to, like, make it a little quest for someone to figure out how to, like, actually engage with the museum. Right, exactly. That's what we thought. And that's the three of us, right? Yeah, let's not tell them. This is perfect. Let's let them figure it out themselves. Um, they, uh, but they don't figure it out. In fact, the the, the uh, especially the the younger kids. Uh, yeah, adults would sit there and mess around with it a little bit, but the younger kids give up. Ah, this is stupid. I'm not, you know. So we give them a little bit, a little bit of a hint, and get them started. And and it's actually become pretty popular. They they spend a lot of time there and and uh, enjoy the. Uh, you know the interaction with the the the, uh, the old computers. We have an old 8088 uh, IBM PC in there with uh, with an MFM uh, you know five megabyte hard drive on it. It's it's a lot of fun. Although keeping that stuff running has been uh, a little bit of a challenge, but so far we've had pretty good luck. Is this stuff? It's funny. Yeah, that stuff belongs in a museum, and I guess that's where you put it. That's- is this is this stuff you already had? Yeah, we between the three of us, John, Joe, and I, we've been collecting this stuff for thirty years uh, to try and uh, build a collection like what we've what we've amassed. 
today would be impossible. So wait, the museum is built of the collect of like the of the personal collection of you three guys. Exactly, and by far between the three of us, we have the largest collection in the world of video game hardware, software, memorabilia, documentation. Nobody has more. When did you start collecting video games? I know you said thirty years ago, but do you remember being like, "I think I'm going to start collecting these"? I vividly remember it. Actually. What was that? What was that moment like? Well, like everybody else, I you know I, I lived through the the video game market's creation and its crash, and you know a lot of the you know, most people will tell you that the the cause for the crash was, you know, the the poor software, and everybody says ET killed the video game. Of course, that's not true. ET is one of many games that uh, uh, kind of led to the crash of the video game industry. But there's a lot of different factors. But one of the the factors that caused the crash that uh, a lot of people don't really talk about is is the uh, uh, kind of the generational thing. If you look at the video game industry today, there is a lot more crap out there than there was in 1984. But uh, you have you have multiple generations to to keep the video game industry going. At that time, there was really only one uh, age group that was playing video games, and in my opinion, one of the big one of the one of the reasons for the crash that people don't talk about, and certainly the reason why I got out of video games, is because we all kind of grew up at the same time. So when I hit uh, uh, you know 16, 17 years old, which was about you know 1984. I realized that there were these other creatures walking around the earth that were of the opposite sex, and I wanted to grab me one of those. So um, that's exactly what I did. I, I put put my I got rid of my Intellivision. I sold it. I, I got a car. I went chasing girls for a couple of years. I, I grabbed one who is actually still my wife today. Um, and back and, to video games. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what happened. Mission About, accomplished. <laughs> 1988. I had grabbed me a girl. I uh, you know I I, I I wasn't married yet. I got married. In 1989, but um, I wasn't married yet, but I was well on my way to getting married. In 1988, I started a, a BBS called the Classic Game Survival Group. And now, BBSs, we got to explain what that is for uh, some, some of the young folk who might be listening. Well, you know, I'm sure, but what a BBS is, BBS stands for Bullet and Borb System, and this was long before there was an internet. So if you wanted to communicate with other people over your computer, you had to dial a phone number with your computer and connect to somebody else's computer. It was one-on-one. Some of the BBSs had multiple lines, but most of the most of the smaller ones only had one line. So you would, you would be able to call into that BBS and browse whatever files or whatever message boards were on that BBS. So it's like a proto internet where instead of connecting to like the global internet computer system you were connecting to like one hobbyist usually a hobbyist i guess i, I you know computer yeah. one person was running a computer that you would dial into and you could write a message and there's message boards and other people would dial in and leave things to each other which sounds very primitive but at the time like it was just you know really cutting awesome. edge so well, you were running one of these like you were the person with the computer that other people were dialing into yeah, yeah, 1988. It was called the the Classic Game Survival Group. It was run the the BBS was run on my Amiga 500. So it uh, it was uh, and the sole purpose of my BBS was to get together with other people who were collecting video games, and and that was where my collection began. My collection began uh, in an effort to get back all of the Intellivision games that I had sold off just whatever, three or four years earlier, um, and now I wanted them all back. And I you know, I, I had started uh, scrounging the local flea markets, and you could pick those games up for a, you know, a dime a dozen at that time. They were dirt cheap because nobody else wanted them. But I wanted them, and not only did I want them, 
um, I started picking up other games uh, uh, for other systems that I didn't really care as much about uh, just to use as like trade bait with some of my friends on my BBS. So I got this guy calling in and he's an Atari 2600 collector. Well, you know, I don't really collect Atari games, but I'll grab them at the flea market because they're cheap and we'll do some trading and maybe I can get some stuff that I really want. So um, my, my collecting... Uh, my collecting got got pretty crazy at uh, at a, in about 1999. I had amassed uh, over 50,000 games in in my collection, and uh, uh, they actually did a story on me in Wired magazine uh, called uh, I don't know a man in his garage. I forget what the heck it was called, but uh, all about uh, you know the number of games that I had amassed over the years. Um, <clears throat> but that's uh, you know that that was. That was how I got started. John and Joe were basically the same way. I'd say that John and Joe maybe didn't have that couple-year hiatus where they were out of it. Uh, Joe is Joe is by far the the biggest hardcore gamer I know. He's always playing something. Uh, uh, and Joe is, is is the modern guy of the three of us. He, he had an Atari twenty six hundred. He had in television. He collected all the the vintage stuff as well. But Joe Joe still plays and keeps up with the best of them. And on Xbox three sixty or Xbox one, and you know you, you catch him online. He's playing whatever the newest game is. Uh, he's he's real hardcore. He's thousands and thousands of uh, of. Uh, Xbox achievement points and just just I, I don't I have zero you know do you do not keep up with like modern games you're mostly focused on the retro stuff in the museum you know like I said my biggest problem is that I don't have I don't have a lot of time for it so I it, like I have four daughters I have two in college I, you know I just I just don't have a, a lot of time for it I I try when I can uh play but uh, like I said it's just uh, difficult for me to find the time uh, I played some Borderlands uh, I played a little bit of Battleborn I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually about tonight uh, I just bought a new graphics card for my computer and I'm going to get on to Overwatch tonight and play a little bit of that but I don't have the time to dedicate to those games that, that it requires to get good at those games I played a little World of Warcraft for a while too but uh, you know the problem is, is you know you have to put in so much time to be able to get good at those games and if you're not good they yell at you so I uh, <laughs> I don't really enjoy modern gaming that much it's not for most of it's not for the casual guy that that I I am uh, as far as that's concerned what have you noticed about how the kids today the kids today let me just like check myself because I just used the phrase the kids today yeah. what have you noticed about what the kids today uh, and how they react to the retro games, like when they come to the museum and they do play something like, forget the giant Pong, because that's obviously got a novelty value, but do kids enjoy Atari 2600 games? Or forget Atari 2600, what about NES, SNES? They do. It's it's really cool. You know, we uh, we have two things set up in the museum, uh, two, two other exhibits. We have an 80s living room and an 80s bedroom. So in the 80s living room, we have wood grain paneling and uh, a velour painting of some random matador on the wall. Um, we have a, an old console TV, uh, a vintage uh, 80s uh, couch and coffee table. And, and in that in that 80s uh, um, bedroom, um, or living room rather, uh, all day long. That's what kids are sitting down. They're playing the, right now we have an Intellivision running in the, in the 80s bedroom. Um, and I tell you, the kids are sitting down. One of the most popular games that we have in that area is Shark Shark. If you've ever played it, I don't know that I have Shark Shark. It's a great game. It's What's a, it on? An arcade game? 
No, it's a it's it's a, it's an original concept. Um, basically, it's it's two little fish. So the whole idea is you're swimming around and you can only eat fish that are smaller than you. But as as you eat these small fish, you grow you grow in size. So you can and there's you know there's a shark which is you're never bigger bigger than and he always wants to kill you. But um, and if you get bigger than the other player, you can eat the other player as well. Oh, that kind of sounds like. Um, have you heard of Agario, which is a popular game on the web these days? I have not these days. It's similar in just that it's uh you're you're a small thing and you eat things that are smaller than you to increase your size and like you just try to get bigger and eat other people. But I like that shark element. It was fun. It's a lot of fun. I had a blast with that. You know, it's one of the few games that uh, I was able to get my daughters into on the classic consoles. But anyway, Shark Shark is playing in that living room, and, and kids are playing that all day long, screaming and you know, shoving the kid next to him for eating him. And you know, it, it, it's it's funny because if you look at if you look at a lot of the, the vintage games, and I, I tell people this all the time, if you look at a lot of the vintage games. You know, the, the what they could concentrate on those games is one thing. They, they didn't have a lot of graphics to work with, and they didn't have a lot of sound to work with, but all they concerned themselves with is making something that was fun. Now, did they fail sometimes? Absolutely. Of course they failed. Of course there are games that aren't fun. But the games that are fun or the games that, you know, that are interesting or the games that are unusual at that time, they almost always were a lot of fun to play. And, and just because they were fun to play uh, in, in 1982 doesn't mean that they're not still fun to play today. Uh, people will sit there and, you know, play Pitfall or, or like you said, Super Nintendo and regular Nintendo. The, the, the other exhibit that we have uh, as far as the, the room is concerned is the, the 80s bedroom. So the living room is set up as kind of like late 70s, early 80s, and that's uh, in television area. But the, the, the 80s, the 80s bedroom is set up for late 80s. So we have a, a blue oyster cult jacket hanging from the ja from the wall and uh, from the back of the the, uh, uh, the the chair at the desk. And on that desk we have uh, a, uh, a Nintendo NES system. And and the only game that uh, that we have in there is Super Mario Brothers Duck Hunt. But you can't walk past that exhibit without somebody sitting there shooting ducks. They're constantly playing that game, and that, young and old alike. I mean, they, these kids are just pick up the you know pick up the zapper gun and and, and they're they're you know they're playing duck hunt or they're playing Super Mario Brothers, and it's not it's not just kids you know guys in their late twenties or early thirties. These are you know ten, eleven, twelve year old little kids, five year old kids sitting there playing duck hunt. The the, the simplicity of these games uh, and and you know the the fun factor of these games has not faded over time, and these kids are, are willing to you know give it a shot and most of the time they're pleasantly surprised what's the gender breakdown between kids coming i have to assume boys and girls both equally interested in this stuff is that right for the most part yeah you know i, I think the gender breakdown of of gamers isn't as uh skewed to males as most people uh, think it is I, I think it's it's pretty close uh, uh the, the female gamers are just a little quieter about it i think but uh the maybe, same they're, maybe they're not as maybe they're not as loud and obnoxious is the way to put it <laughs> imagine that right yeah no that's exactly the way to put it and uh it's the same in the museum little girls are having just as much fun as, as the little boys and and uh it's uh it's it's not really a, a gender thing at all. Everybody's having a blast. All right. Well, what this is the one I'm really waiting to ask you. What games are there? Like we talked kind of about generally the exhibits and the themes, but what are the actual games that you can play at the museum? And how do you select of all the wonderful video games that you've played, that you've seen, that you've enjoyed? How do you pick which are the games that belong in a museum? Well, they all belong in a museum. But the idea we have a couple different concepts that were that were kind of. Uh, um, 
floating through the museum is you know for one one example is one of the one of the uh, uh, one of the exhibits deals with controllers. So um, so in that exhibit we have a TV set up, and I think right now we're using an Atari Twenty Six Hundred. But the idea is to let people use weird and unusual controllers. What, what are some weird and unusual controller games? I'm thinking you got some fishing games, maybe. Yeah, actually, that's that I was, was going to say. We had an Atari Twenty Six Hundred in that exhibit with just last week. Uh, my partner Joe switched it over to a Dreamcast, and right now we're using uh, uh, Sega Bass Fishing with the with the fishing controller, which uh, that people are having a blast with. But uh, one of the other ones we used was uh, we had an Atari Twenty Six Hundred set up with a controller called uh, Lay Stick, and the Lay Stick is is a joystick that you hold in your hand, but there's no base to it. So inside of this joystick, there are mercury switches, and you just move the joystick in midair and you press the fire button on the top of it but people were baffled by that joke and that's the whole idea we want people to be baffled and that's from atari like yeah that's on atari it's almost like a motion controller thing but not yeah yeah but not at the same time yeah exactly but people are baffled by it but by that controller they have no idea how to use it and they, they couldn't play the game very well but that's the fun of it we want we want to put all the weirdest controllers as po- possible in that exhibit and let people check it out. Um, we also have what we call the the head-to-head hall, uh, which is another section of the museum that we have. Uh, we have 12 different gaming consoles set up, and there are stools bolted to the wall. You just come up, grab a stool in front of the, uh, or bolted to the floor, rather. Uh, grab a stool and, and uh, you know, play whatever game that happens to be on those consoles, and we change those games up weekly. So uh, we'll have Smash Brothers in there on N64, we have Streets of Rage 2 on the Sega Genesis, or we had Katamari Damacy on, on the PlayStation 2 for a while. Um, you know, like I said, we have we have the largest collection of, of video games in the world, so there's nothing that limits us to uh, to, to what games we put in there. We just kind of grab some, whatever looks fun, whatever. Uh, and then, you know, we also at the same time, if we notice, eh, nobody's really playing this game, so we'll, we'll, we'll pull it out of the rotation and put something else in there. We've also had people come up and ask, hey, do you have this game? Well, if we can quickly grab it out of the back, we'll do that. And, and a couple of times uh, we've had people ask for specific games and, and we've gone in the back and pulled it out. And sometimes we, we don't have what they're looking for. But uh, <clears throat> the idea is... This is all going down on the original consoles with the original games, right? No emulation, I assume? No, no emulation. These are, you're all playing You're playing on the original console with the original controllers um, and <clears throat> off of the original cartridges. The, uh, the idea is that we want people to be able to play some of the weirder games that they've never been able to... Uh, that they otherwise might not have the chance to play... But also at the same time, uh, we want people to people to be able to play games that they've heard of, and maybe they don't own a, a Sega Genesis, or maybe they don't own a Saturn, or maybe they don't have a 3DO, or uh, maybe they don't have a, a video game brain because nobody has a video game brain. Well, we do, and we have all the games that were made for it. So that's a console, a video game brain. Yeah, I thought you just meant like a brain for video games, but that's like a thing you can own as a video game brain. Yeah, it's a console. It was pretty short-lived uh, back in the in the early '80s. It looks more like a computer, but it's a uh, it's a game console, and it takes cartridges. And you know, we uh, we put that one out there, and most people have no idea what it is. It's really kind of a bizarre system, but uh, that's the idea. We want people to be able to, you know, I mean, who who has one of those at home? Not very many people. Uh, we have a Vectrex set up in in one of the areas. People can walk up and play the Vectrex. Uh, so you know, from the most bizarre to the most most uh, most well known. Uh, there's really no limits in that in that area in the head to head hall area that uh, um, you know what you might find to play. Is there like a crown jewel, like a prize uh, item in the collection? 
Yeah, you know, everybody asked that question. <laughs> There's probably 20 things that I could name. Um, one of the, the more popular ones, uh, for example, uh, there was a controller made by Atari. Uh, it, never, it was never released, but uh, they, uh, they were advertising it in, in the early 80s called the MindLink controller, which was for the Atari 2600. And basically what this was is it's a headband, and you strap it on, you strap it onto your head, and this controller supposedly could, could sense your thoughts. Right. There's a few toys that do this now. Um Star Wars Force Tester is one I made a video with a few years back. Right, but imagine the technology in 1982. There's no way in hell this was ever going to work. But they were they were developing it, and and they had flyers, and you know they were trying to sell it, and they never actually released it, probably because they realized it was you know it was stupid and it didn't work very well. But what this controller was is you strap it onto your forehead, and if you can move your forehead in just the right direction or, or wrinkle it just the right way, it would pick up on the motion in your forehead. It's not reading your thoughts at all, but there are only a few of them in the world. Uh, we have we have three of them. We have one that's pretty completed. It's on, a, on display in the museum. Um, we have... We have a puppy pong machine. That's one of my favorite uh, favorite uh, items that we have. It's pretty rare. Um, it was a pong console that was, or not a console, but uh, a derivative of the pong arcade machine that was made by Atari. And the the plan was uh, they were going to have it licensed by uh, by Charles Schultz, and it was going to be Snoopy Pong. So it was Snoopy laying across the top of his red doghouse, and in the in the side of that doghouse was a CRT with two knobs, so people can play pong. And they were going to sell to like doctor's office and dentist office and things like that uh well first of all charles schultz wouldn't give them the license to use snoopy so they couldn't paint the the doghouse red or put snoopy on it so they changed it and they just called it puppy pong and the dog the doghouse is yellow and there's just some random dog that's on the top of it but it, it, it does exist there are only i believe only two of those have ever been found uh, we have one of them in the museum um we have a Sega Neptune in, in the museum. Uh, the Sega Neptune was the, the Sega Genesis with the 32X built into it. Um, there was only one. Uh, it's, it's just a mock-up, but there was only one of them that's uh, ever been found. Uh, we, have, we have the only one in the world in the museum. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the the the, the sewing machine that connected to the uh, Game Boy Color. Oh, I saw a video of that recently. That's, that was crazy. <laughs> Yeah, we have that on the museum. I, th I thought it was Nintendo. It's Game Boy Color. It's Game Boy Color. You yeah. would know. I believe you. Uh, yeah. That was cr I couldn't believe that when I saw that. I saw some. Yeah, nuts. So it's a sew. It's a sewing peripheral. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. And it's an actual sewing machine. And there's like, I guess, digitally, you can feed it patterns. I don't really know much about sewing in the first place, much less like how it interacts with the Game Boy Color. Um, yeah. But this was like a legit sewing machine that connected to your Game Boy. Yeah, yeah, we have it in, in one of the display cases where you know you can uh, where you can uh, you can't use it. We don't we don't allow people to touch it. It's pretty rare, but uh, it's it's plugged into a Game Boy Color in the display case. Um, what would you say if I came to the museum and I just planned my vacation extremely poorly and I only had an hour there? That would be an absolute disaster if I made it there and I only had an hour there. When I go, I'm going to need like a full day or two, and I know that. But let's say I only had an hour. Like, wh what would you direct me to? What What do I need to see in the museum? Yeah, that's a that's a. You can make it. The museum is only ten thousand square feet right now. You know, we have uh, options for for more space in the future. But right now, it's only ten thousand square feet. So you can walk through the museum 
not spend a lot of time at, at each of the exhibits, and you can get through it in you know in a half hour or forty five minutes if you want. So if you only had an hour, I would suggest to go through. Don't spend a lot of time reading the information. Try and pick up as much visually as you can. But what I would tell you is to come back tomorrow for God's sake. <laughs> I know, because- I know, I know. <laughs> if you were spending forty five minutes, you're missing out on so much of it. A um, couple of couple of the things that uh, that really stand out in the museum is is uh, we spent a lot of time with local artists. So we had a lot of uh, a lot of uh, bare walls in the museum, and what we did was we put out a call to a local art or- organization in uh, in Frisco, and we asked them uh, to get us some contact information for some of their artists, and we had a <laughs> A bunch of their artists come into the museum and and paint murals all over the all over the museum. And I'll tell you what what those what some of those people came up with is absolutely amazing. We have we had a guy that uh, a local artist that did a, a dragon slayer mural uh, in in one of the corners of the museum, and and uh, it was actually featured on on Don Bluth's uh, uh, website uh, recently. But uh, the what this guy did in that in that section, you have to see it to believe it. I mean, I can describe it until until I'm blue in the face. Um, and you, you never get the full effect of it until you come in and see it. But that would be one of the things that I would tell people who don't have a lot of time: is make sure you take in all of the art. They're, they're just amazing artwork. And the, the same guy that did the Dragon Slayer mural also did our, our '80s arcade. So within the museum, we have an operating uh, '80s arcade with Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and Centipede, and they all run out. All the games cost a quarter, and everybody that comes into the museum and buys their ticket, they get four four tokens to start themselves off with. And inside the arcade, they can you know pump dollars into the change machine and get as many tokens as they want but um spend some time in the arcade there's a lot of great games the art in the arcade is just phenomenal the the same guy like i said the same guy that did the the dragon slayer uh, did all the walls in the arcade and he he built a 3d centipede busting out of the walls and it's absolutely phenomenal the the artwork but uh make sure you know in that hour that you take in some of the art that's in the museum because it's, it's really a sight to see and it's a site that uh that doesn't uh doesn't it, that isn't done justice when you see pictures online? You got to see it in, in in person. Now I don't know a lot about museums, but I think if you're a museum, you got to be doing special events, right? What kind of special events are you guys running? We haven't done any of that. Oh, but. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to put to throw you under the bus. <laughs> no, it's definitely on the agenda. Um, you know, we we talked about that a lot before we opened. Uh, the the main thing oh, we should that- stress, and I don't know that we've mentioned, you guys have been open for what? Just a few months now, right? Yeah, eight weeks. You've been open eight weeks. Yeah. So yeah, no special events yet. That's okay. They're coming. They're coming. But I'll tell you that that's that we have a lot of ideas. We're going to redo the Nintendo World Championship, for example, in our head-to-head hall. We're going to set up uh, a whole wall of Nintendos and, and redo that uh, Nintendo World Championship. Uh, we had a lot of different ideas, but we kind of wanted to get our feet wet, uh, make sure that everything was running smoothly. Like, for example, just this week, our... Uh, our uh, our world's largest pawn console broke, so we've kind of had to go back at, to the drawing board a little bit and figure out uh, uh, how we're going to do it. Where where people, you know, I, mean, I don't think anybody really abused it, but just in general use, pet playing that, that pawn console and getting kind of excited to broke a couple of the parts inside of it. So it was down for three or four days this week and just went back up today. But we kind of want to make sure that we had all the kinks out before we did any of that kind of thing. But we do have definitely uh, have some plans for that. What about video game adjacent things like pinball? You guys got any pinball? No, we kind of stayed away from pinball. We thought about putting a couple of pinball machines in the 80s arcade because uh, 80s arcades, as we remember them, always had two or three pinball machines back in a corner. But 
Uh, it didn't really fit. It, it's the National Video Game Museum. So not that there's anything against pinball. We love pinball, but uh didn't really fit in there. There is a pinball museum. I think it's called the Pinball Museum, right, in Las Vegas? Called the the Pinball Hall of Fame. It's a Hall it, of Fame, excuse me. Yeah, it's on... Uh, it's on Tropicana Avenue, just down the street from from the Tropicana Hotel. It's it's actually run by uh, a gentleman called Tim Arnold, who was a pretty big ar- arcade operator and, and a friend of ours. We've known Tim for years. That place is amazing. Listeners of the show will not be surprised to learn that I'm not a huge Las Vegas guy, and I, I don't I, I don't find, there's not a ton that I love to do in Las Vegas. But when I'm there, I gotta go to that Pinball Hall of Fame. It is um, they've got. Some really that's a it's a really crazy collection. If you're ever in Vegas, just a little off the strip, I, I strongly recommend it. I do too. Absolutely agree. What about like uh, board games? No board games. We're just on video games, right? No, we actually did do it. One of the one of the exhibits that, uh, like I said, out of that fifty six the list of fifty six, one of them that made the cut for for right now was was board games. Uh, we did an exhibit of uh, of uh, video game related board games. So you know, back uh, when video games were dominating every type of gaming in the early eighties, uh, a lot of the board game manufacturers were getting were were tanking because nobody was buying their games. So what they did was, uh, well, let's make some board games based on some popular video games. Uh, it was kind of interesting because uh, video game the video game industry kind of fed them for a little while and, and uh, kept them kept them afloat with their Pac-Man board game and their Donkey Kong board games and Cubert and every other game we we have hundreds of, of board games that are based on video games but uh, it was kind of interesting uh, when we were writing the the story for that exhibit how how video games kind of. Uh, uh, you know, even though video games killed the board game industry, or not killed it, but you know, they they, they uh, uh, kind of you know hit it pretty hard. Uh, board game board game companies, you know, they they kind of they kept going, and and it's interesting that you know board games were the ones that started taking the risks and and innovating, and and uh, I don't know, both of the industries kind of fed off of each other, and they still do to this day. So it, it, we did do a board game exhibit, and it's actually pretty popular. People really get a kick out of seeing. You know, we have probably forty different video game related board games on display in that exhibit. Do you guys have like one piece, like a Starry Night, that just everyone that comes to the museum has to see something? That's like the most popular piece in the museum. Um, or is it just Super Mario Brothers? <laughs> I'll tell you what the, the that stupid little duck hunt game. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, you if know, you put a zapper in my hands, I would love to play Duck Hunt because you can't play it. Play uh, it you can't play it anymore because it, it doesn't work unless you have. Uh, a CRT TV. You can't, like, the zapper, the way it works, doesn't work on flat-screen televisions. Um, I actually shot a video where we used Robbie the Robot. I'm sure you guys have, like, just a garage full of Robbie the Robots. But I got one, and I was very excited. And it was such an enormous pain to hook it up to the TV and get the whole thing working. So, yeah, if I had a chance to shoot that zapper and, like, feel that spring and that sound, I'd I'd be right there. Yeah, it's, it's pretty popular. There's always somebody sitting there shooting ducks. Uh, I'll tell you what, uh, and uh, I don't want to say that that you know one little CRT in the museum is is the shining star of the whole place. It, it isn't, but yeah, you know, like I said, the museum isn't that big, so I don't I don't really know that I would say that that there's any one thing that I would I would point people to, but. Uh, um, 
you take you got to take in as much of it as possible, and and you know if you take in take in uh, as much as you can afford time wise, as you know read some of the stories. There's a lot of uh, a lot of different uh, informational uh, placards all over the place, and and you know read some of the history, and and it, you definitely uh, it costs twelve dollars to get into the museum. I, I don't I don't think we've heard anybody who uh, who hasn't felt they got their twelve bucks worth. You know we've come all this way. And I haven't had a chance to ask, what are what is your favorite video game? Is there a game or maybe two or three that really affected you, that made you realize that video games are art, and that put you on this path to uh, opening to you know opening a video game museum with the world's largest collection of video games? I grew up playing in television, uh, and television was my system. We got one in 1979, and and uh, there are a couple of games on television that uh, uh, that really stand out to me and. The the problem is in naming my favorite game is 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 uh, you know what what are the what are the criteria so so if I take nostalgia out of it or you know or if I only base it on nostalgia one of my favorite games of all time is Sea Battle on Intellivision but there's a lot of nostalgia behind that that choice so uh, one of the games that I I spelt probably spent the most time playing uh, is is Diablo 2. Uh, I played so much Diablo 2 on the PC that, 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 that my uh, I wouldn't even begin to tell my wife how many hours I put into that game. She'd kill me, but uh, I played so much Diablo 2. And an interesting side story on Diablo 2, um, Diablo 2 is a dungeon crawler, and it was made by Blizzard, uh, and, and I don't know exactly what year it came out off the top of my head. But, uh, Late 90s uh, maybe? 98, 99, something like that? Yeah, maybe a little earlier than that, but that's probably about right. Um, but in Diablo two, uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, one of the one of our friends that we've we've made over the years uh, in doing these exhibits and, and museum related stuff uh, uh, worked at Blizzard. Um, and as he was leaving Blizzard, one of the, one of his parting gifts was he they gave him this hubcap, and the hubcap uh, basically any sound that you hear in the game of a sword clanking a sword or something hitting a shield or metal hitting metal was made by somebody banging something on this very hubcap. Well, that hubcap is on display in the museum, and it's probably one of my favorite pieces in oh, the whole. I love that. That's so cool. And that's a great way of kind of give it like uh, contextualizing what it takes to make a video game and, you know, kind of the art that goes behind it, you know, to have this physical art. It's interesting because, like, you know, with movies, there's costumes and props and, like, all these, like, leftover artifacts. But for video games, it's just code in a computer. So that's right. a really great, like, physical thing left over from the production of a, a classic game. You are far from the only person who... Uh, pro you're far from the only gamer whose game they have spent the most time with is Diablo 2. So right. to have, like, that physical, like, leftover from the production of that game, that is a great piece. I love that. The real sad part about that is is people walk through the museum and we have a little, we have a little card on on the hubcap but it's it's sealed in, in a little acrylic box hung on the wall and there's a little card in front of it but most people don't spend the time to to uh, to read that card and you know yeah you know they walk by it but every time I walk somebody around the museum I stop and I tell them you know here and everybody loves that story even if they're not a huge Diablo two fan everybody loves that story but most people don't you know don't spend enough time or don't read you know read enough to to understand hey what the hell is this hubcap hanging on the wall for it but once you know the story it's a great story yeah well I gotta tell you I love what you're doing here. I, you, next time you see the mayor of Frisco, you can let him know that uh, your work has 
significantly raised Frisco's uh, ranking on the list of cities I need to visit. Significantly. <laughs> um, I, I, it's amazing. Like, you're, it's, it's perfect. Like, of course this needs to exist. Uh, it's so great that you guys have built, um, I, don't, I don't know, a place to, to teach this stuff. And um, like I said when we started, my favorite things for the show are things that uh, you, you're surprised to hear they exist. And then you think about it and you're like, of course it exists. And as soon as I heard about this, I was like, finally, of course this exists. And I can't wait uh, to visit and see it with my own eyes. Well, let us know when you're coming down. I'll uh, personally walk you through it. You'll have a blast. Guaranteed. I will take you up on that, Sean. Thanks so much for uh, talking about this afternoon. No problem. Thanks, Jeff. All right, folks, that's what I got for you for this week's Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. Uh, I've been on vacation for a few weeks. This one was recorded a few weeks ago. I haven't recorded an episode in a few weeks, which is pretty unusual for me. Uh, And I'm excited to kind of dive in and start turning out some more of these year six episodes. Lots of good stuff coming, and you'll be the first to know about it if you follow me uh, on Twitter, where I'm at Jeff Rubin Show, on my YouTube account, that's youtube.com slash Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin. I got a Facebook fan page. I got an Instagram. You can even sign up for an email newsletter if you go to jeffrubinjeffrubin.com and you can get every episode of this show ever for free uh, and I'd love to hear from you uh, via any of the previously mentioned avenues that people you would like to hear uh, on the show in the future and my email address is on that website jeffrubinjeffrubin.com or jeffrubinjeffrubinshow.com uh, so there's no excuse for not reaching out to me and letting me know who you think would be a good Jeff Rubin Jeff Rubin show guest I'm out of ideas I'm just kidding I got plenty of ideas um, but some of the best ones come from you guys, so I'm always asking for them, uh, just shamelessly groveling, and why don't we leave it here? I'll see you guys in two weeks, but for now, bye! Bye!